Graduation or commencement? Which is it? We call it both. The word graduation looks back. It denotes completion. We graduate from a particular course of study or period of life. Commencement looks forward. It denotes beginning. We start something new. We join the workforce. We go to college. Either way we look at it, it's a time of significant change in our life. And in the text we're going to jump ahead and cover today, it's a time of change for Jesus. His three-year ministry has come to an end, and he is entering Jerusalem to begin the last week of his life. In effect, it's his graduation and his commencement. And it begins with what we're going to call the procession, even though it's more like the parades and drive-bys our graduates are experiencing this year. We're in Mark chapter 11. And as they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. And they brought the colt to Jesus and put their garments on it, and he sat upon it. And many spread their garments on the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed after were crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking all around, he departed for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. The prophet Zechariah had written 500 years earlier, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It was time for that prophecy to be fulfilled. Jesus, the disciples, and a host of pilgrims making their way to Jerusalem for Passover week were on the road to Jerusalem. They were less than two miles from the city in the vicinity of Bethphage and Bethany, small villages near the Mount of Olives. Now, we're very familiar with Bethany, which means house of poverty. It was the house of the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. We don't even know for sure where Bethphage, the house of unripe figs, was located. All traces of it have disappeared. Matthew indicates that it was when they came to Bethphage that Jesus sent two disciples to the village opposite them to get the donkey. He even told them where to find it and what to say when asked why they were taking it. We aren't told how he knew about the donkey. 
Some suggest he had made arrangements for it on an earlier journey. Others suggest he used his divine power to know about it. There are problems with either suggestion. It had been several months since he'd been in Jerusalem, so making prior arrangements seems unlikely. And if he was going to use divine power to locate a donkey, why didn't he just make one appear along the roadside? If Bethphage was the location of the fig tree Jesus cursed along the road between Bethany and Jerusalem, it's possible that they had just gone through Bethany and that Jesus had seen the donkey tied there and decided to send a couple of disciples back to get it. The phrase translated opposite you doesn't have to mean ahead of you as the NIV translates it. If Jesus had just passed through town, the bystanders would have known what the disciples meant when they said, the Lord has need of it, and he will send it back. However it came to be, Jesus was now seated on the young donkey, entering Jerusalem as prophesied, not as a king coming on a mighty steed as a conquering warrior, but humbly as a king coming in peace. That fact may or may not have been noticed by the pilgrims. Mark pictures them lining the road with garments and leafy branches, literally rolling out the red carpet for him. John notes that they took palm branches and went out to meet him. It's been suggested that the use of palm branches was like waving a rebellious flag in the face of Rome because they can be found on coins from the Maccabean period when the Jews had their independence, and the word Hosanna literally means save now. So the crowds may have been calling for Jesus as Messiah to lead them into victory over Rome. Or they may have been simply praising him, because by this time Hosanna had become a simple exclamation of praise. They may have just been recognizing the fact that he was coming in the name of the Lord and that the long-expected kingdom of David was at hand. Either way, they were celebrating his entry into Jerusalem with pomp and circumstance. Sadly, something our graduates may not get to hear this year. When Jesus got into the city, it was late. So he just looked around the temple before returning to Bethany for the night. Next day, however, began with something that looked promising. And on the next day, when they had departed from Bethany, he became hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he answered and said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. This is a strange scene indeed. And at first glance, it doesn't make sense. You know, Jesus and the disciples left Bethany, heading back to Jerusalem when Jesus spotted a fig tree in leaf. He was perhaps at a place along the road that soon became known as Bethphage, the house of unripe figs. Apparently, he hadn't eaten breakfast that morning, and he was hungry. 
So he walked over to the tree, expecting to find something to eat. But nothing was there, except for leaves. Because, as Mark notes, it wasn't the season for figs. So why did Jesus expect to find anything? Well, I'm more familiar with fig newtons than fig trees, so I can't vouch for what I've read. But according to one commentary, fig trees produce small edible buds buds in March. In April, large green leaves appear, and by May, the buds have fallen off, replaced by actual figs. It was April when this occurred. So Jesus may have been looking for the little buds that precede figs. Whatever the case, Jesus found nothing to eat on the tree and said, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. He cursed the tree, and the disciples heard it. I think he said it, not in a fit of disappointed anger, but intentionally for the sake of the disciples. He was making a point. And unlike Matthew, who presents the incident and the disciples' reaction to it in one scene, Mark divides it, using it to frame the account of the cleansing of the temple. I think he was saying something about the empty promises that the temple held. The night before, Jesus had just looked around the temple, sizing up what was going on. The temple was intended to be the place where God and man could meet. But, as we'll see in a minute, it had been horribly corrupted by the time of Jesus. Finding nothing but leaves and empty promises on the fig tree, Jesus then used it to illustrate the condition of the temple. And, sad to say, it also illustrates the empty promises of many institutions of higher learning today. Many are led to believe that in going to the university, they will find answers to the questions of life and the key to success in life. But the expected fruit is often missing from the classroom. What is taught is all too often diametrically opposed to what Jesus taught and what is taught in God's word. So conflict is inevitable, and polarization should be expected. We certainly see it taking place in the temple at Jerusalem. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to cast out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple and began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. And the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for all the multitude was astonished at his teaching." According to John's gospel, Jesus has done this before. He cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry as a wake-up call to the religious establishment. Now he does it again 
at the end of his ministry, exposing the religious and educational community for what it had become, a commercial enterprise that gave more thought to the bottom line than the plumb line of truth. What had been intended as a house of prayer for all nations had become a robber's den where pilgrims were fleeced before they could offer a lamb. They came in innocence, only wanting to find ways to express their faith and be obedient to God. But they were preyed upon by wolves who devoured them for the sake of personal gain. Obviously, Jesus came into conflict with such men. What they wanted and what Jesus wanted were poles apart. He had come to set men free from sin and a materialistic mindset. They had forgotten their spiritual roots and had sold out to the gods of the world. They didn't like what Jesus was saying. It threatened their positions of power, so they caught or sought to destroy him. The multitudes were astonished at his teaching. Some of them even understood it and were radically changed by it. The same is true in the spiritual and intellectual arenas of today. Twenty-some years ago, I found a most encouraging book, Finding God at Harvard by Kelly Monroe. At the time it was being written, however, another book, The Search for God at Harvard, was also being written. In The Search for God at Harvard, the author limited his search to the Harvard Divinity School and could find no one to speak of the gospel and the person of Jesus. It was almost impossible to find God in the school of religion. But in the introduction to Finding God at Harvard, we read these words. In this book, we find this gospel and this person by entering the whole university. We meet professors, alumni, and students in the college and ten graduate schools, scientists, philosophers, medical doctors, an Olympic medalist, homemakers, environmentalists, an economist, a sophomore who is battling bone cancer. Their searches and research reveal a high common denominator. Their microscopes, telescopes, and eyes are all windows surveying a shared horizon. Through their stories, we see the gospel, the first light of America's first college. God can still be found on university campuses, but not always in the classrooms, and sometimes not even in the seminaries. If our graduates go to the campus like pilgrims to Jerusalem, expecting their faith to be affirmed and Christ's presence to be welcomed, they will no doubt be very disappointed. But even on the most secular campuses, pockets of belief can be found. I want to challenge our graduates to search out those pockets of faith. Get involved in a good campus ministry. 
and find a local Bible-believing church where you can worship. There are still multitudes who have been astonished at his teaching, even if those in positions of power and influence often seek to destroy him. And as was true 2,000 years ago, they may be able to crucify him, but he will rise again. He is even now exposing the emptiness of their promises, and one day we will see a lot of cursed fig trees withering from the root up because he has the power. And whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. And as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, behold, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it shall be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they shall be granted you. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. Sometimes life is overwhelming, and the obstacles to faith seem like mountains, but they can all be overcome if we maintain our faith in God. He is the one who has ultimate power. He is the one who will expose the emptiness of the world's promises. He is the one who exposes the foolishness of those who have thought themselves wise. He is the one who will condemn those who have caused others to stumble and fall. And he offers his power to us. Power to overcome. Power to face life with confidence. Power to forgive even those who would lead us astray and sin against us. He never said life would be easy, but he gives us what we need to succeed. He's given us what we need to engage in the battles of life and come out victors if we'll trust him and use what he's given to us. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul reminds us, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. If we will take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, 
We can destroy everything raised up against the knowledge of God. Whether we find it in the temple, the university, or the workplace. We must never forget that as we graduate from one phase of life to another, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the only rock upon which one can build a life that is eternally secure. So don't be lured by the temporary beauty of a beach and build on the shifting sands of man's latest thoughts and theories. Keep your eyes focused on the one who is leading the procession to the holy city, the one who exposes the empty promises along the path of life, the one who polarizes men into two camps, those who accept him and those who reject him, and the one who offers us the power to move mountains and remain faithful to the one who put us here in the first place. Don't let anyone or anything move you from the solid rock upon which you are building your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the assurance that if we will build our life on the truth of Jesus and the truth revealed in your word, we can build a life that will stand the test of time. And Father, I pray for our graduates this morning as they enter into new challenges and face even some obstacles to their faith, that they'll keep their eyes focused on you. They'll stay in your word. They'll seek out those, those groups of believers that exist throughout the world, throughout the universities, throughout the workplace. They'll fellowship with them. They'll study with them. They'll be encouraged by them. And they, in turn, will encourage them. Thank you, Father. Thank you for this time of change that's come. May it be a time of adventure, a time of success, and a time of victory through Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray.